Volume number three, issue number 108. I am DM Vince, sitting alongside DM Matt. Hello, everyone. And the ever-so-cleric with blunt weapon, Nick. No, Nick. Hey. <laughs> I'm here. And yeah. just to let you know, yeah. I'm using a ballista. A ballista? Wow. Yeah. Are you backstabbing with it? No, I'm a cleric. I cannot backstab. Okay. If you're listening to this podcast for the first time, this is the podcast, the only podcast that covers the only end original podcast, only covers first edition Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. Yay! Huzzah! Huzzah! And this week, we're going to, since we've got such a lot of emails and voicemails, we're just going to go over them all this week and just answer your questions. Letters to the editor. I think this is number three, Matt, right? Uh, yeah, this actually would be three. Yes, we're going to get into our uh, mailbag of holding, and uh, we're going to see what you guys have to say. Yeah. You know, we had an interesting uh, conversation in my group the other day about bag of holding. Nick, did you bring that up? <laughs> oh, well, hey. The, the, the question was, in the bag of holding, if you just keep stuffing stuff into it, mm-hmm. but let's just say you wanted to pull something out, the players had a problem with, well, wouldn't it be just a random pull like that guy's hat on the cartoon? And my answer to the situation was no. Usually you think of the item and it appears in your hand when you pull it out. But how would you rule that, Nick? That's how I kind of play it. Yeah. I- uh, it, whatever. If you know what's in that bag of holding, it's like, oh, yeah, I want to get that uh, yeah. that uh, that gold uh, bar that we found. Yeah. yeah. You'll reach your hand in. Oh, look, it's that gold bar. Yeah, they were arguing, saying it was like Presto's hat from the cartoon. I was like, that's if you find a bag of holding. Yeah. Right. I yeah. hope I wouldn't find that one. Yeah, that's actually how I play it, too. It's like if you know what's in there, you can find it. Now, though, I'm thinking, what if you had a group of players that were thrown into a large enough bag of holding? What would happen to them? There's a Knights of the Dinner Table uh, comic that is all about that called the bag wars. <laughs> okay. I'll have to check that out then. Cause yes. I'm just imagining them being trapped in this, whatever dimension the bag stores the stuff in. And then they'd be walking along and all of a sudden, Oh no duck. It's a suit of armor falling from the sky. Well, yeah, there's like in, in that, in, in the game Hackmaster, there's mega capacity, like bags of holding and such <laughs> like that, that you can have like, like whole villages and such. Yeah. It's its own little pocket <laughs> dimension. It's like if, yeah. it's like if there was a Galactus size uh, bag of holding, you could just stuff entire worlds in a bag of holding. You know, it'd be really cool is if that you have something like that and you populate this whole bag of holding with like creatures and things and they start worshiping you. Yeah. You open it up. You'd be like in the, what, what was it? Men in black Two. all hail 
Jay. All hail Jay. <laughs> oh, Jay, can you see? <laughs> right. And, and then when your hand reaches into the bag of holding to pull something out, they're like, oh, no, the fickle hand of God comes down and he's taking them to us to a higher plane of existence. Yes, exactly. So a little bit of news going into things. As you all know by now, Wizards of the Coast has released the stuff on PDF again. Yay! Yay! And there was much rejoicing. Yeah. <laughs> you can go to dndclassics.com and you could buy whatever PDF. And I found that they are honoring old orders as well so far. Yep. Anything they've released that someone had already had purchased way back when, you got your stuff back. So, so good for I'm, them. Yeah, as they if, yeah. have lots of good stuff on there already. Yes, and I'm happy B10 is there because I need a B10. Yeah, yeah. and they for first edition AD&D, for all you folks, they got Monster Manual 2, Dungeoneer's Wilderness Survival Guide. Yeah. Uh, I also highly, highly recommend to get it for first edition. They have Temple of Elemental Evil on PDF for like nine ninety nine. Yeah, you won't be that's, finding that's a, a steal. Yeah, you won't be finding a nine ninety nine Temple of Elemental Evil pretty much anywhere unless and you they, bought maybe two pages of it. Yeah, and they got the whole Salt Marsh series series on there too. Oh. So yeah, you one through you three. I yeah. mean, you could snatch all those up for basically fifteen bucks right. for PDFs. And then, from what I've seen, these are actually really high quality scans, not like the scans from the first time around. So it's yeah. actually all searchable, readable, and uh, yeah, they look great. There's uh, chaptering in indexing. the PDFs and the indexing. And, yeah, yeah. You bet it, you got. Let's see, uh, adventures. You got hidden shrine of Tomoachan, Ghost Tower, Inverness. Uh huh. Um, Descent to the Depths of the Earth, Vault of the Drow, uh, Against the Giants, Queen of the Demon Web Pits. You got them all. Yeah, the only stuff missing is the core rule books because they want you to buy those reprints. You think? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I admit. Uh, Oh, another thing I almost forgot. But I think it'll be this week that the uh, reprint of Earth Arcana comes out. Yep. Is it this week or is it going to be the previous week? Yes, because remember, when we we are podcasters, we time travel. Yeah. Actually, yes, it would be the it would be. I think it's on the fifteenth. It gets released February fifteenth. So yeah, I'm happy too because I'm just I'm going to be using the unorthodox canon in my group now that we had to split because we got so huge now the group. Oh wow! Uh-huh. Well, it's just you know I was one of those unlucky people when I bought mine. Mm. Uh, the the you know the whole binding issue with the uh, unorthodox canons. I, I'm not sure what it is when they were originally printed in 85, but there must have been like a first or second print run because I don't know which print run I got, but I got the one where the binding is like barely holding the darn thing together. Yeah. 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 Uh, mine's still together too, but I don't, I'm looking at it. It's still pretty good condition. Yeah. Mine's actually oh. in really good condition too. I don't know, but I've, I've heard that from a lot of people. Whatever, either they... Sp- whatever printer or there must have been a flaw in the in the gluing of a particular print yeah. run because mine my binding is like i mean it's holding it together but barely right yeah th- yeah i thought i had heard something that they tried to do some cost savings when it come to the binding of the orange spine books i might I was, have yeah but my monster manual 2 is in fantastic shape yeah. the the orange uh, binding on that one 
Mine looks oh, like a truck driver drove over it, man. My dungeoneer, my dungeon master's guide, my monster, my player's handbook, they're all in good shape. So I, I don't I know. I have two books in my collection that look like they barely touched, and I'm sure you can guess which two. Uh, Dungeoneers and Wilderness Survival Guides? Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Those are literally a dime a dozen. I, I didn't get much just because I'm a collector and a completist. I had yeah. them, too. But... Uh, yeah, and from what I understand, the uh, Unearth Arcana will have the incorporated errata. Yeah, that is official from Watsi. They did say the errata will be in there. That was in the one issue of Dragon Magazine way back in the day. <laughs> so, no worries there. All right. So, uh, moving along quickly here, uh, another announcement: Archive.org has released all the Dragon Magazines, Polyhedrons. Uh, the Omni magazines. What else do we have there? Heavy Metal. Heavy Metal, Strategic Review, Space Gamer. Was Dungeon on there yet? Didn't see Dungeon. Okay. probably but all see, those but... that you mentioned, they're all on the archive.org. And... Matt, you could put that link in our show yep. notes, people. I don't, is it a long link? I don't know. Uh, it is actually fairly simple. It's archive.org slash details slash dragon underscore magazine. Yeah, and there's many different versions. You got, you know, you can read it online. You got PDF you can download. There's even Kindle version. Right. Yeah, we put it up on the forums, and I was like, I don't know how long it's going to be there for, but apparently it's still there. It's legal. They've had a couple of other legal battles in the past from some other publishers, and archive.org won. Yeah. Because because they are a library. They're part of, I guess, the California library system. Yeah. So... Libraries have special rules, and they get to distribute information in spite of copyright at times. Yes, they do. But is it like a Lego, Lego, yeah, (laughs) a regular library that you have to borrow it and bring it back, or you can actually keep it? I think there's – I just know when I was downloading mine that there is some sort of – there might be some sort of watermarking process going on in the background. Oh, okay. So there is some sort of tracking process. So, I want to have some type of block on it so you can't transfer between computers or something. There, that might be so. Uh, uh, let's see. So they might tag the PDF or the Kindle version. I don't know. But I know there was I know there was some little thing that came up when I uh, was downloading it. It says it has, you know, this blah, blah, blah came up. And, you know, in order for you to view it, it has this has to happen. So. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, no, I wasn't paying attention much. I said, I want them. <laughs> Whatever you say, I'll agree to it. Just give me my yes. dragon. <laughs> well, Nick, I could have asked for like the first blood of a child or something, and you just like, just give me. And, you know, that was the I end got of it. two kids. So I'm good. Oh, I'm sure Mrs. Nick won't like that. No, I just said blood. Didn't say the, the life of a child. <laughs> and uh, last thing, if you head over to our website, rfipodcast.com, we have a new 10-foot poll up, and we'd like you to vote. It'll be up there for at least 30 days. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. The question is, who would you like us to request an interview from next? We have Ernie Gygax, Luke Gygax, Kim Mohan, Jim Wampler, and Gail Gygax. Voting is in process as we speak, and so far in the lead is Ernie Gygax with uh, 45% of the vote. So yes. get in there and vote and vote often, <laughs> like Jason used to do more than once. I don't know how he did it, but he did. Just vote and vote often. It's like uh, up here in Northeast Ohio. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll get into that, Nick. Anyway. I, won't, I won't. I'll leave that one alone. 
I also went to the website and uh, made it a little more clear for where you can get the direct downloads. Uh, Libsyn library, the MP3 library. Okay. As well as I put all the interview shows up so you can quickly just find all the interviews. Yep. And uh, the actual plays, you can click on those and see those as well. And there's a little bit adjustment to the website. And I think everybody can see what's uh, going on with all these people in the 10-foot pole. Well, it's because we just interviewed who? Um, um, uh, um, um, Jason? <laughs> yes, and? Tim Cask. And Tim Cask, who are part of Gygax Magazine. Yay! Which we're all really excited about. So Definitely. I can't wait to get my issue. Yep. Oh, my gosh. As of now, you haven't gotten yours yet? Not yet. I I just got an email yesterday saying that it was um, it was sent. Yeah. It was mailed. Yeah, I so. got my email yesterday too, saying it was sent. But from what I was reading, I think the, that uh, notification was actually kind of delayed being sent out. So the right. magazine shipped prior to us being notified that it was shipped. Oh, goody, 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 goody. So hopefully we'll get it early next week. Oh, I'd be happy as a little schoolgirl. Yes. <laughs> yeah, you'll you'll definitely enjoy it, boys. Definitely enjoy it. Just so there's everyone out there. There's some really good articles in there. Great. So let's head over to uh, the main part of the show here and get some voicemails going here. All right, let me get the first voicemail going. Here we go. Hi, my name is Ken. Uh, I was just listening to episode number 38 about Sandbox Pictures, and there was the the stage advice about the person who wanted to use the pitch as a big bad evil guy and was looking for some feedback. guys talked about how one of the keys to role-playing that would be that the lich would use uh, minions and henchmen and hirelings uh, rather than put itself in harm's way and do whatever it could to, uh, to stay alive. But something I wanted to add to that is it would probably also be vindictive. So if you use the lich in a campaign, your characters can cross it, then it would flee rather than fight to change that. But it occurs to me that it would also his eye on the players and come back after them when they least expect it. And not in terms of like being lame and wait for them when they get out of the dungeon itself, but maybe like, you know, many sessions later or uh, just over the course of time, sending different things to them, uh, which may to the players seem like wandering encounters are random, but with, uh, I guess, signatures that maybe eventually pick up on, it's coming from from the lich that it hunts kind of in its own way, hunting them down, trying to get back whatever they may have taken from them, or just smite them for having the audacity to have crossed this path. Um, and so it, could, it wouldn't, it would be a big bad either guy, not just for one campaign or one adventure or, or like one module's worth of work, but something that would come back over and over again until they finally figured out a way in a grand scheme, like a, a, a an overarching story to trap it and kill it so that so that these things had to stop so that in theory you could have the characters doing all, all sorts of other campaign stuff but periodically keep running into this this bad guy who, who uh, is just recurring to, to mess with them uh, or to try and kill them because of the one time they encountered him uh, in the past and so I just wanted to run that I love the show uh, great work thanks bye So what do you guys think? That's some great stuff right there. Yeah. yeah. 
Ken, you're one devious DM. I love you, man. That's awesome. That's exactly how you should play a lich. Because he's got all the time in the world to wreak revenge on the player characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you, Ken. Let's go to our next email. Hey, RFI guys. Um, love the show. I think you guys do a great job, especially for volunteer work. All right, I have two questions. The first one is um, armor and dex bonus. Like, at what stage in armor wearing do you lose your dex bonus? Or, say, do you, like, have it or minus it when wearing steadily heavy and uh, more encumbering armor? What are your thoughts on this? Thanks. My second question is um, two-weapon fighting. Like, how exactly does it work? I mean, I, I assume there's probably, like, a minus to hit for your second weapon or, or whatnot. But uh, just wondering what you thought about this and what the book rules are on two weapon fighting. Thanks. See you later. Goodbye. And the squeaky door closes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes okay. Fortunately, it was coming from my chair, so therefore I can edit myself out since I record myself on a separate channel. But we're recording this now, and it sounded really cool, so leave yes. it in. Okay. I, I, I shall <laughs> use my chair for gaffer sounds. <laughs> yes. Right, so who has that ruling now? On the attacks with two weapons? Yeah, I heard you were talking about that earlier, Nick. Yeah, yeah, it's in the Dungeon Master's Guide, uh, page 70. Uh, and the attacks with two weapons, you can use one weapon in each hand. The second weapon must be a dagger or a hand axe. Mm-hmm. So, and there is a penalty. Uh, the the uh, primary weapon hand of the user is at a minus two. The secondary is at minus four. Mm-hmm. If, and... If your dex is below six, you use the reaction attacking adjustment penalties in the player's handbook and are added to each weapon attack. If it's below six, you said? Below six. Right. So, I don't so, think you'd be able to hold a weapon if you were six or below. So, well, Yeah, that, I'm just going by what it says yeah. here. And if your dex is above 15, there is a downward adjustment in the weapon penalties as shown. Although this never gives a positive bonus rating for such attacks. So that a 16 dex, uh, your secondary would be at a minus 3. Your primary would be at minus 1. At 17 dex, you'd be minus 2 at your secondary hand, 0 at your primary, and at 18, you'd be at minus 1 and 0, respectively. So that's like before like any, and that's before any magical bonuses, of course. So that's how that works. But it does say the secondary weapon must be either a dagger or a hand axe. Hmm. I believe that changed in later editions. I think the later editions you can have. They're pretty much similar to that. But I guess with like third edition, there were some feats that they added on that increase it. Right. Yeah. Because it was like you could take like ampidextrous and dual weapon fighting and get the penalties down to like a minus two, minus two for both. And then once you throw in your hip, normal to hip bonus and all that, you end up in the positive. Now, think- does, doesn't rain, don't Rangers, they don't have that, uh, uh, that penalty for two weapons, I believe. Classics Ranger. I don't, 
I thought they didn't, or that I might be thinking of later editions. Yeah, hey, I was thought that was that second. might be in, that might be in second edition. Yeah, you're right. yeah, that's in second edition. So, yeah. Okay, might as well look it up while we're sitting here looking at the book. Yep, yeah, I looked in the Unearthed Arcana. I thought they might have had something in there about Rangers yeah. and the two weapon attacks, but they don't. No, and it's not in the player's handbook either. So, so yep, that's for your second edition players. So, yeah, refresh hand about having one be a larger sword than the other one so you can use like a short sword along with a long sword but it had to be smaller in that sense right i think that might have been second edition but right it yeah. might have been but yes. yeah we're in the first edition rules it's either has to be a hand axe or a dagger yep so by the book in first edition drizzt doesn't exist no he yeah. doesn't no dueling scimitars for you oh well, he's a drow he's different He's special. And, uh, okay, so he wanted to know about the armor class, too. I think he might have been thinking of a later edition with yeah. that also. Yeah. I think so, too. Yeah, because there, there's no reference to losing any dex bonus due to armor in the player's handbook or DMG that we found. Yeah, the only thing there is is the regular dexterity, uh, re, uh, was it armor class adjustments for either high or low dex. Yeah. And so. Yeah, you never lose them, even nope, if don't lose them, even yeah. if you're wearing full plate mail. Yep. Yeah, I, I know third edition definitely took those things away, so we might be thinking of the D twenty edition or something. Mm. All right, so let's go to our next voicemail. Hey everybody, uh, this is DM Angelo out here in Los Angeles, and uh, I had a well. First of all, I wanted to tell you guys you guys are doing an awesome job. Keep it up. It's a great resource for uh, old school gamers. And uh, yeah, what else can I say? You guys are awesome. Um, my uh, my little question is is for you guys. Uh, I remember I, I don't remember exactly who it was, but it was some of the earlier episodes. One of you guys mentioned a D six method of doing. I don't know if you want to call them skill checks or just checks individual, and then adding a D6 for complexity and or difficulty. So I have adopted that system in my game and absolutely think it's pretty a pretty awesome way of doing things. Uh, for instance, I had in my last game a ranger that climbed up in a tree and a zombie while he was scouting. And I guess uh, there was a walker uh, that walked by him. And uh, he decided to, from 10 feet up, jump, well, put his bow back away, jump down, and roll with the sword in hand and try to slash at the... uh, the zombie and surprise it. So what I did was was okay. Yeah, you, you can do it. You can visualize it, and and it sounds real. What the heck? Why not do it? Um, so what I did was he had a pretty high dexterity, and I I you know gave him okay. It sounds kind of complicated. Um, started out with the base of three d six. Added I think I added a couple more dice to that because it kind of sounded a little you know a little crazy. But what what the heck? So he. Uh, you know, roll under your decks, and obviously he, he well, he succeeded, did it, and the group uh, killed the zombie. But anyways, uh, I, I just wanted to know, 
what if anybody uses a system similar to that, um, what is a general, what is kind of a, a rule A rule for, I, I'm just winging it right now, but what is kind of a rule as far as adding uh, or ruling, adding uh, dice to it uh, and What's your I basically what's your guys' take is on that, and what kind of checks you would use uh, um, to uh, you know put to this method? I, I've been just I've just been just using uh, mainly physical activities that are are kind of kind of crazy and uh, that uh, require some type of a, a check that I uh, that I feel will, will you know work good with the game. Anyways, I'm starting to ramble, but uh, uh, you guys are doing awesome, and uh, I'm uh, really, really glad that I stumbled upon this uh, this podcast. And I'll tell you what, uh, uh, I started out in the '80s and uh, went to a uh, another system uh, um, a couple years back, and uh, ever since then uh, I. Couldn't handle anymore, and I got some duct tape and duct tape up my old books and uh, uh, my old other edition books, and it's not turned back, uh, not not uh, went back. And so, uh, AD and D is the way to go. So, anyways, guys, thanks a lot, and uh, thank you much. Bye. Well, thank you much. All right. Yes. Uh, well, yeah, that was actually uh, me. I was talking about that because uh, the great Joe DM. <gasps> oh, the great Joe DM. We, have a, we need to get a drop for that, man. Yes. Need, yeah, we need to do. A, we, we need, need to, yes. to do something for that. <laughs> like, like they do on the, the radio. The, oh, the, the great Joe DM. Anyway, yeah, he did that method, and I took it. It was a uh, forty-six, and then from there you would adjust it minus or plus depending on the situation and, and there's no real i don't think he had any real standards for it i just know as it got harder he kept adding a d6 to it to based on the situation if it was a lot easier he would minus one off of it you kind of have to judge it yourself as a dm so so you'd roll like a certain amount of d6s and it was and then whatever ability if you rolled above or below that i guess you'd have to the, the target normally was below the below number. the ability score mm -hmm. yeah like dex or constitution or something like that. Yeah, below the ability score. So if it was a oh, dex okay. check, you have to roll below your your dexterity. Yeah, yeah. I okay. actually use that in my game. So I use the three d six, or sometimes I'll be like, "Eh, give me a d twenty and a d six, or here, roll this d 30 <laughs> I've been I, using like d twenty almost all the time. That's fine. I see a lot of people use that too. Yeah. yeah. I used to use a D a three D six, but then it was like when players have higher dexterity, it was kinda like their percentage chance of failing were like what, one percent at that point? Yeah. Right. So I figured the four D six that at least gives them a fair chance to fail like everybody else. Right. So that'd be like a good baseline would be four D six. Yeah, I figured yeah. so. Huh, okay. Yeah. All right, so uh cool. And an interesting uh situation this player was in there with the zombie, so <laughs> I like it. Yep. Me likey. Anyway, <laughs> a little Chris Farley for you. Let's go on to our <laughs> oh, Richard. Anyway, next voicemail. Hey, guys. This is DM Kojo. I'm calling to talk to you about the half-orc. <laughs> it seems like it's really underused, at least 
always in my games, no one ever wants to play a half board. Kind of a joke. Nobody takes it seriously. Um, and you probably may know by now that I like players play unusual things. I like the illusionist or the gnome. Uh, but I like the unusual things. But the half orc, what's your experience with it? Many people play it. What are some pros and cons of playing it? And uh, also, do half orcs have pig face? All right, guys. All right, thank you, Mr. Kojo. We love when he calls in. Uh, so he has an interesting one this week uh, about half orcs. Uh, yeah, I, I guess they would have half a pig face. What do you guys think? <laughs> Yeah, there'd be a only half a pig face. Yeah. I would agree. <laughs> Maybe we should make a pig face random generation chart to see what part is pig faced. Did you get the pig ears? Did you get the pig nose? The pig jaw? If you want to waste time on doing that, Matt, go ahead. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to do that, but it is funny. Uh, let's see, half orcs. I don't usually have them in my games because people don't like playing them because usually, A, they're ugly, B, and they're not accepted by most DMs in society, so they always get the brunt of everything. Yeah. As uh, most players, uh, players, DMs follow the, the word of the letter that's listed in the book as they're hated by everybody, so. Yeah. Well, I have a half orc in my current uh, Ravenloft campaign, <clears throat> and we, I don't go by that everyone hates half orc situation. So, How so, dare you? Yeah, so that way they can actually be more accepted and and playable unless you want to play that. Well, these, much like the canteen in Star Wars, those half-orcs aren't welcome here. Get them out. No, sir, you're kind here. You're droids. Right, yeah. I don't do that, so. But my character, the player, likes is really one to play like a really stupid character. So he actually... Wanted he actually asked to lower his intelligence down to six. Okay. So I'm like, okay, <laughs> let's do this. At which point it led to some wacky situations in the Ravenloft campaign where they were being followed by this frail looking guy holding a children's book of poetry and a lantern. And they weren't quite sure if it was a ghost or if it was a real person. So they cast the sleep spell on it and the guy collapsed. Our half orc was really still really curious, is this ghost or a person? So he decided to go cut his pinky off. And oh. well, he cut the guy's pinky off, and unfortunately for him, the guy only had one hit point. No, oh, jeez. So the guy bled out to death. Oh. And now our really dumb half orc is now being haunted by the ghost of this guy. And it's only him who can see it, and he'll just pop in and cite random phrases that are actually hints for what for what's going on in the world but it's yes so it but it has to be ciphered through the mind of a half work with a six intelligence Intelligence. oh my goodness yes in which (laughs) yeah and it's just so bad at this point because the half work just keeps hearing the voices and they won't stop he's like trying to drink himself into stupors to pass out yeah he he asked the uh magic user to cast sleep on him i mean it's just like make it stop (laughs) so so i'm having some fun with that but that's awesome it just depends on the player and what how they're going to play their half orc are are they playing a half orc because they want to play something different or are they playing it because they want to go around and just be disrupt your game by being smelly brutish half orc that just causes a bunch of trouble as opposed to helping the uh party and the story go along 
Yeah, I I have always been the opinion that uh, you know I I look at half works. That's a good role playing opportunity if that's what you want to play. I mean, yeah, out of the player's handbook, they're generally they're pretty much shunned by most other races. But you know what? Maybe this is a you want to have a bit of a challenge by playing this half orc and trying to, you know, maybe prove himself to society that, you know, he, he has some worth and he could do some good or, and, 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 mm-hmm. uh, be a betterment to, uh, you know, be better, uh, a better, I don't know. Yeah. He, he could do the right things, you know, right. even though he has an uphill battle, but I think in a way, I, I think it's kind of a, uh, a cool uh, race to play if you want to get out of your comfort zone and, and play it that way, you know, kind of the outcast, but he wants to prove himself to others. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just something different, and I think a lot of DMs will get hung up on, we have to have this animosity between half-orcs and all the other races. You don't actually have to do that. If it makes no. sense for your world, then Yeah. I think that's the most important thing to consider. How? What is the place of half-orcs in the world you're creating? Right. Is it right. just an accepted half-breed? Or is it, as some people interpret it, are they created under uh, less-than-ideal situations? Yeah. I mean, that and that kind of plays into the type of character and how they're treated. Yeah, I, I get, you're exactly right. It all depends what kind of game world you have. In fact, I would say, like in my game world for my other my other game, for my regular group, I would say half-orcs are, are generally more accepted for the most part because evil has taken over most of the world anyway. So right. <laughs> They're not that evil. <laughs> They're only half-evil. Well. Semi-evil? Yes. <laughs> um, yes. <laughs> Uh, so anyway, okay, so we have one more voicemail left. Let's get to that one right away. Hey, guys, this is Andy up in New Jersey, and uh, shout out to Vince. Uh, looking forward to get back to the Book of Sorrows at some point. But uh, I had a question for you about thieves. Um, I, I've always been bothered by the fact that the thieves' skills are so abysmal at first level. It just almost makes no sense. They, I couldn't even consider them even apprentice thieves, much less first-level characters. I'm just wondering if you guys have ever, in any games you've run or played in, come across a good way to supplement the uh, those, the um, skills that thieves have, that list of skills, uh, Something that makes it a little more interesting or, or even achievable for thieves to be, accomplish much the first level or two, um, certainly up to third level. Um, anyway, I uh, appreciate your time and look forward to hearing what you say. Take care. Okay. And that was from Andy. All right. Cool, Andy. Uh, I miss playing with Andy. He was so much fun to play with. He was playing Corbin in the Book of Sorrows. And, uh, yeah, unfortunately, I don't have the time to get back to that game because I work during the week and late. And by the time I get home, it's, you know, it's family time and stuff like that. So, and that's the only day we can play. It was Tuesday nights. So, maybe if I get a different job sometime soon. Then. <laughs> but for now, no. As far as thieving skills, uh, I think we've said it before in the past. Those numbers are only a guideline. 
the DM is responsible for making the situation, or I should say, adjusting the numbers based on the situation. It's not like if he has a fifty percent; it's always a fifty percent. the The weather could play a factor. The darkness, the light, how many people are around. Nick, I think the last time you we spoke about this, you said that if he's in a crowd of people, you get like a bonus because, you know, he's covered better when he's picked Yeah, off. sure. I mean, those sorts of things, all those different environmental factors can play into it. Yeah, those are kind of like a baseline. Right. And you, you adjust accordingly up or down. I mean, besides the given adjustments that you have for dexterity and race and what types of armor the, the thief might be wearing – I mean, you have all those different environmental factors that could play in and 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 whatever situation it may be. Right, you know? and and then the speed at which they're doing it also would affect if yeah, they, speed. If, yeah, if they have all day to pick that lock, they're going to pick that lock. Right now, if they or, pick the lock in like under a minute, that's a different story. Right. I mean, let's go on with that that lock picking analogy. I mean. Uh, how much time do they have? What's the quality of the lock? Right. Is it is it a really poor quality? I mean, a cheapo one that that was made. I mean, they probably get a bonus. Uh, or is it like uh, uh, something like that was out of a, a, a combination lock that's like out of uh, Angels and Demons? You know, so right. uh, the book Angels and Demons. You know, it's just like super combo yeah. lock sort of thingy. Right. So you're going to get a hit with a penalty, maybe a pretty severe one. So all those things factor in. Right. I mean, and when you have your players roll, you don't have to tell them the modifiers. So that way, if you'd rather them succeed than fail, you can just kind of say, yeah, you succeeded due to modifiers. You don't have to tell them your math. If them failing would hurt the story. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, don't worry about the numbers being low at the beginning. As a DM, you can make it to where the chances for success are better just by taking into account the environmental situations. Or may, perhaps the players have some brilliant plan for actually uh, accomplishing whatever they're doing, be it hi- hiding and then like, okay, I'm going to be walking with this potted plant in front of me like Wiley e. Coyote and Looney Tunes. Maybe they get a little bit of a bonus for that. Um, no. No. <laughs> Or maybe they act, you actually give them the penalty for trying to hide like Wile E. Coyote. That's up to you. Yeah, that's where I would kind of fall on that. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, it's just up to you to, to determine what modifiers. Remember, those numbers in on the charts are neutral situations. There's no advantageous, no disadvantages with those numbers. And you're rarely going to have a situation where there's no situational modifiers, really. I mean, there will always be something that should affect the role. So take advantage of it to make it easier or harder, depending on how you think it should go. Excellent. Excellent. Yes. Yes. So that includes all the voicemails. And if you'd like to leave a voicemail, you can dial 570-865-4210, the hotline. Yay. Oh, that's right. I had a request from Facebook, by the way, uh, from I believe it's Michael Oswald, mm-hmm. who wants me and you, Nick, to sing Sage Advice again. He misses that. Sage Advice. We're going to have some Sage Advice. There you go. That was just for him. I, I believe that was his name. I'm sorry. I don't have Facebook up in front of me. I don't want to yeah. crash everything on the computer. I normally don't do requests, but, you know, hey, yeah. what the heck. Okay, so let's head over to the email. So we got a big bag here full of emails. So, uh, yes. 
rfistaff at gmail.com is our email address. And we got the first email coming from Michael F. And he writes, I just started listening to your podcast. I'm on episode 12, literally, as I like type this. Not right. I just wanted to say your podcasts are amazing. Jason is truly creative and a truly creative individual, and I love listening to his calls on rulings or introducing elements that can solve puzzling questions. Vince is a greatly humorous guy who can always seem to apply some absurdness thinking to rulings. Yes, I can, which somehow makes sense. And the back and forth between the, these two is what I believe gives this podcast its uniqueness. Now, I personally don't play AD&D. <laughs> Having only played D and D via four E, oh. <laughs> my tongue. Yeah, I can hear the groans already. There, there were the groans. Yeah. <laughs> Shock horror. <laughs> no, and if you enjoy it, you just keep playing. Yeah, it's a, and it's yeah. a it's a perfectly fine tabletop miniature game. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Matt's still one of those guns. As Matt See? says sarcastically. <laughs> no, I actually did enjoy. I played it in a dungeon delve at Gen Con one year and had a lot of fun. I mean, I played Castle Ravenloft and Dungeon Command, and that's similar to Fourth Edition. So, yeah, it's whatever. Not, yeah. Minis game. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, I do come from a long line of RP. He comes from a long line. Wait, yeah, it does say that I do come from a long. So he was born into RPGs. So he's an RPG himself, apparently. Awesome. Now, I do come from a long line of RPGs, Shadowrun, White Wolf products, and a lot of self-detailed GURPS. I'd like to see some of that stuff. Mm. And it was only a year ago or so that I convinced friends to play D&D. Oh, that's a shame. What I think is great about your podcast is that it confirms my own belief that RPGs should be storytelling first and mechanics second. Yeah. He didn't actually write it that way. I just read it that way. The power enveloped in the <laughs> words of a dungeon master as a storyteller is far greater than any attempted adaptation to turn tabletop games into power plays. Should I read it like a wrestler? Power plays or something. I don't know. Yeah. I think I drank too much turbo coffee today. <laughs> I'm also a bit, a, a bit, a, um, a bit of an adapter of the rule books, holding no reservation at the cha- uh, changing anything I dislike. To which my players understand. We may be playing D and D, but without knowing anything about AD and D, despite the common themes and names, I like to think that we're keeping the spirit of Sir Gygax's original vision alive. I have no real reason to email you. Any reason is good enough. Don't worry. Apart from saying I tend to listen every every one of your casts, and I hope you maintain the path you're currently on. You all have my gratitude and praise, all natural 20s. Huzzah. I think he's going to be even a big surprise as, he's, <laughs> as we switched over the cast a few times. Yeah. A few times, yes. Yeah. Things have changed a little bit. Yes. But hey. But yeah. Well, thank you, Michael. Yes. And you may actually be keeping uh, the spirit of Gary Gygax alive more than you think because there was, I believe, somewhere in Dragon Magazine, he actually complained about storytelling and role playing overtook the uh, actual game portion of Dungeons and Dragons. And that, <laughs> and that was in the early 80s. Yeah. So yeah. remember, it started off as a war game that evolved into storytelling. So but that was the thing about Gary. I, sometimes he was one way, and then like he completely flopped the other way. I, don't, I didn't understand why he did that. So <laughs> yeah. Because he came old, older and com- more curmudgeonier? I don't know. Or maybe there was like a certain level of balance, and he just saw the pendulum keep swinging to the extremes on both ends. Yeah. Like role-playing and uh, 
just spewing off 20 pages of backstory became the fad. And he was like, no, 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 that's too much. Then it was like, oh, wait a minute, too much mechanics. Got to get, yeah. It, I think it was maybe finding that perfect balance that he liked. That's what I, that's what I tried to strive in my game, at least. At least I hope I do. Yeah. That I try to maintain that balance between, you know, storytelling, pres- I shouldn't say storytelling because this sounds like I'm just rambling on and on to my players and they're just sitting passively. Well, well no, it's a group storytelling. Well, in a way, I present the situations. I present plots right. and, and, and things to them. They're the ones who are creating the story it, by them interacting in the world. Yes, it's kind of like – present to them. Yeah, it's kind of like whose line it is it anyway when the host throws out, here's your topic and your genre, go. That's exactly – that's how I kind of look at it. Yeah. And, a hat or something like that. Yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I think a good DM is like that in, in many ways. He just presents the plots, the ideas, the concepts, and it should be up to the players to to, to run with it wherever they want to. Right. And and game mechanics, you know, well, we've we always said rulings, not rules. I mean, there are some rules that I like to stay by. I mean, generally, for the most part, like in combat. I try to stay by the combat rules for the most part, but everything else is kind of arbitrary. As long as you're consistent, I try to maintain that balance. And ultimately, if my players are happy, if they're having a good time, hey, go with it, man. Exactly. It's great. It's all good. Exactly, because that's the point, having fun. If your group is having fun, who cares if it's not exactly by the book? It's all about getting together with friends and having fun. And Mm -hmm. however, whatever flavor you prefer, do it. There's nothing wrong with the heavy tactical by the book if that's what your group wants. Or if you want rules light with just playing the rules fast and loose just to keep the story moving, and that's fine too. I don't go diceless, man. That's just crazy talk, man. That diceless stuff is just crazy, man. Yes, like Eric uh, Wujek, who did uh, TMNT for Palladium, actually came up with the Amber Diceless system. I never actually read it, though, so I'm not sure how it works. But No, Diceless is bad. Yeah. I'm not going to rock, paper, scissors my way through combat. Sorry, not going to happen. What about using <laughs> the bag of chits? Oh, chits. Well, that was back in the day. You only had chits. And a lot, and right. remember the, the, the rule book, the, the box sets? Yep. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They had chits. Well, that was all you could get. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they ran out of dice. They were too expensive. Yeah, they were too expensive. Exactly. Uh, yeah, and also remember when you're playing in your group, don't just single out one player because they're the ones that are talking They'll and doing the most role playing. Oh, don't forget to go around the table and say, what are you doing? What are, what are you doing? Right. Exactly. Yeah, the, another good DM does that. I mean, it sometimes wakes those people up. It's like, you're going around there. When are you doing? Huh? Oh, what? Right. <laughs> talking to me? Yes. Right. right. I've seen a lot of people, in, especially the large group that we've been playing with my group, I'm sitting there as a player waiting for my turn, and I see other people with their head down on the table practically sleeping because they're waiting as one person is just sitting there going, I do this, and I go over there, and I go over there, and I do this, and then I can't blah, blah, blah. It's like, dude, give someone else a chance. Right. Yeah, I... Yeah, it, it, it could be hard. That's a good point with large groups. If you get more than eight people, you know, it could be very difficult. I mean, there are there are times if, you know, if everything's right, I'll have like nine or ten people at, at the regular game group uh, wow. meeting that we have once a month. So, uh, and it could be kind of daunting, but, you know, 
my think my players are experienced enough that they know it's like okay, uh, they generally some gravitate towards one type of situation and some others gravitate towards some other situation that might be going on at the same time. And I'll work with one little group here for a few minutes. I'll say, okay, cut scene. I'm going over here to you guys now. So <laughs> almost like, almost like a director in a movie, you know, yeah. in a way, or like you're directing a, a series like on television. It's almost yeah. like you almost do it like that. And in a way it's kind of exciting. Cause I think they also, they visualize it almost that way. Right. So. Okay, you know, cool. Yeah, it's all good stuff. I'm sorry. I'm rambling. <laughs> yes, Nick, put, put a, a rope around it, okay? Hey, uh, I'm, I, I'm sorry. Hit yourself in the head with a blunt weapon, all right? Uh, I, 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 <laughs> <laughs> Fine, use the flat edge of a blade. There you go. I'm Scott not going to use either. It'll hurt. Yeah, <laughs> Scott S. writes, and this one is uh, pretty interesting. I'm curious, to, what are your opinions on a magic user spell book? What do they weigh? How many spells can one book hold? And uh, do you allow traveling or smaller spell books? Keep up the great show. Also, expanding upon this question, because I know a lot of new people ask this question on top of this question they always ask, well, why does it have that chart in the beginning of the player's handbook that says minimum spells, maximum spells, but if you look in the DM's guide, it says you only start with four spells. Which one do I refer to? So I know there are options in the uh, Unearthed Arcana about traveling spell books, but yeah, I generally don't use those. So, uh, Nick, you have it open. I hear you flipping a page. So Yeah, uh, just saying, page 79 and 80 in the Unearthed Arcana, if anybody has it, that has all the guidelines for magic user and illusionist spell books, including traveling spell books. So you can use those rules, and you can use, look to other game systems for um, maybe more detailed info if you want it on spell books. So, but in first edition AD and D, yeah, look to Unearth Arcana pages seventy nine and eighty. They talk about um, how the costs, the types of spell books, the physical aspects, their value, and also casting the spell directly from the book. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which uh, I know in my games, I, I usually, as a house rule for spell books, I, I say the spell book is about as thin as the player's handbook, pretty much. Yeah. And, and I would also say that it uh, magically changes pages. As you keep changing a page, you get another page, and the other previous page just goes into the book. So when you open the book, you just go say, Magic Missile, and boom, open the book. There's the Magic Missile spell. Then you close mm-hmm. the book and you say, I don't know, Fireball, and open the book. There's Fireball. So it's mm. kind of like a never-ending spellbook yeah. pages. I kind of think that just makes it a little more neat and uh, interesting to do it that way. I like this little rule if you care to use it when you're directly casting from a spellbook. It goes away, right? Oh, and there's more. Oh. Go on. Yeah, there is a 1% chance per level of the spell that the spells immediately preceding the following of the spell cast will likewise be destroyed. Oh, there is an additional one percent chance that that the casting of a spell directly from a spell book will destroy the entire book. Wow! <laughs> I, I didn't really realize. I didn't realize. I didn't know that one. <laughs> I conveniently forgot that one because in my other group with the kids, they've had a couple of times had the cast directly from a spell book. For you know, this was like the last ditch effort. <laughs> uh-huh. 
So well, I, you said that you can cast directly from the spell book anytime you want. It's like the scroll effect. It just disappears. That's how I kind of did. I didn't know about the the cumulative like one percent per level of the of the spell might destroy either the book or the previous spell on the other page. Yeah, so you just, yeah. You don't want to be casting that wish spell from your spell book. No. 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 <laughs> But what are your guys' thoughts on maybe using something that isn't necessarily a book as your spell book? Maybe like I played a game where it was in Forgotten Realms where the they had taken over the entire world. So they and they went and exterminated all non red wizards. So I was playing a magic user who had a bunch of rocks as his spell book with his spells carved on the rocks. So that way he just looked like a crazy old guy playing with a bunch of rocks when he was actually studying his spells. I got a rock. Yeah, I, I have Don't take my His bag of rocks. Charlie Brown. <laughs> yes. But what are your thoughts on maybe you, for specific campaigns using something not necessarily book form to store your spells? Well, I know one way you could like tattoo the spells on you. Yeah. You could do that. Um, I don't know. Maybe use like clay placards maybe or uh, wood placards uh, well yeah. tattooing the spell on you you're gonna run out of room real quick i mean true we bend over quick read my button give me that spell well <laughs> at that point maybe you have to gain some weight to get more spells ironically the one on the butt is del- is a delayed blast fireball <laughs> right. so the uh delayed blast fireball. <laughs> so is it like the fat wizard has an advantage matt is that what you're saying yeah more surface area <laughs> <laughs> Okay. No, but actually, every spell was written so differently in the handwriting of the magic user. Some spells can go on for pages right. upon pages. Right. Isn't there something about uh, the variable lengths of the space they take up in a book? I believe there might be. I don't really. I think that is an Earth Arcana. Yeah. Yeah. But we know that no two magic users write the spell the same. Henceforth, the reason why first edition has read magic. Yeah. Everybody argues about, well, I could read another magic. It's the same class. Well, no, they don't always write the same way, do they? Nope. Right. That's just one of the things you keep an idea about magic users. They kept their spells secret, how yeah. they learned them. Right. So one magic user not necessarily couldn't read the other magic user's right. spell book. Right, because they'd use different types of shorthand and have different ways of channeling the, the magical powers to get the same effect. Also, you could put explosive runes on the book. Exactly. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like I do. <laughs> That's what or I was kind of annoyed at. <laughs> I was kind of annoyed at when it was in later editions. They got rid of read magic because they were just like, well, you're a magic user. You can just read it because everything's written in a standard handwriting. It's like, ugh. See, standardized tests, I tell you. <laughs> standardized tests. Dumbing down all the magic users. See? Yeah. Definitely, Yeah. Yeah, apparently they went to the public school system of magic users and illusionists. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely true. Our next one is from, oh boy, this is a long one. DM Longstaff Sixpenny Striker. <laughs> and he or she writes, Hey gang, the very first adventure I ever played was N1 Against the Cult of the Reptile God by Douglas Niles. Has any of you played it? If so, what are your observations? Uh, I would love to hear a review of this module if you ever get around to it. Love the show and keep up the good work. I'm a huge fan of all the Wild Games production shows and listen to them regularly. 
I am still getting caught up on RFI, though. I apologize. You already addressed N1 in a previous show. Mm-hmm. Um, we have, there's this Blackstone guy. Yeah. I just reviewed I... it a while back, but... Damn him. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Quit on us, that guy. Actually, right. as far as observations, it's one of my favorite introductory adventures. It's got a little bit of everything in it. Um, you know, it's got the, it's got the town that's, you know, traumatized and they're under some evil curse or whatever. And you have to find out what's going on with the town, why people are disappearing. And, uh, there's a dungeon and there's people that are part of an evil cult. And it's kind of village, a homlet, except with reptile gods. And instead of bandits kidnappings. Yeah. It's like, it's like a, Temple of Elemental Evil Light, yeah, in, in a way. And my experience—I've run it a couple of times—is I, I guess some pitfalls that could f- be with it is now since I'm going to discuss the module. Spoiler alert for everybody oh. now that no. I'll be discussing this. So spoiler alert, spoiler alert, spoiler alert. No. Okay. <laughs> in the town of Orlane. There is a temple. Now, uh, keep in mind now, all these modules at the time were written for World of Greyhawk fantasy campaign setting. So the temple is for this um, agricultural goddess by the name of Marika. And um, Marika, uh, her priests inside this temple oh, about a year ago have been um, converted over to the reptile god cult. And most of the people don't know it. So uh, the problem I had was one of those looking at like the the the, uh, the head priest. I think he's a sick. I, I'm going off just to the top of my head. He's like level six or seventh level uh, cleric. How is he getting spells above third level? Because technically, according to the rules, <laughs> if you can't cast any spells above third if you fall out of your faith, correct? It's like, uh, definitely correct, it's like yeah. second or third level spells you cannot cast above a certain level. Right. Oh, no, wait. So, third, maybe it's a fourth. I, I thought it was even lower than that. Go ahead. I thought it was like second or third I think level it's spells. third. I think you can get the first and second because they don't come straight from your deity. They come from right. like his assistants. It's right. not until third level spells that you're They're actually – actually directly from your god or goddess. Yeah. So I'm like, how is he getting these level spells? And he's like a sixth or seventh level, um, uh, you know, cleric. And I thought, well, obviously the reptile god can't do it because it's not really a god in there. It's just some other creature. So I, uh, I kind of played it as that this creature is actually like kind of an avatar or, you know, a messenger for some other evil, like, I, I always played it like as either a demon or a devil because, you know, according to deities and demigods, you know, demons and devils, the, the major ones, the arch devils and such, they are all intents and purposes. They're lesser gods. They have the ability as a lesser god. So they do have worshipers. So that's how I kind of played it. And I think that's a really cool, interesting angle to go with it because then after that, as if the characters progress, now they got a serious villain to deal with, either a demon or a devil. So that's how I kind of played it, and that was a fun way of doing it. And I also like that, you know, it's not your typical um, you know, orcs or goblins or whatever, it's troglodytes. 
that are that are some of the major creatures in here. I, I did, and the only other thing I think I had an issue with was a lot, or not me per se, but some other people saying the 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 big bad guy at the end, that mm-hmm. spirit naga. There's only a, that's pretty nasty for first through third level characters to try to defeat is a spirit naga. I mean, that's a pretty nasty monster, and in, in a way that has you have to get in contact with a particular person in the village who has a spell a scroll of certain spells that you can use to defeat them, uh, the defeat the Naga. And people think that's, you know, that's kind of railroady in a way, but I guess you can get around that. I, I don't know. I really didn't have much of an issue with it. Some people feel that that is an issue, but Hey, that's how the module was written. So, mm. okay. but I've always enjoyed it. I think it's a good uh, introductory adventure. Like I said, it's got a little bit of everything in it. I mean, I don't know what your experiences with it. Neither you, um, Matt, matter. sure has to beg to differ with you there. Yeah, the squeak. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, yeah, we'll, we'll get to doing another review on N one mm-hmm. as we'll go over. It. Maybe I don't know if we should because yeah, Blackstone did it, but yeah. we Blackstone. So. Yeah, if you want to listen to Blackstone, you can go back to issue six, Divine Intervention. Where Blackstone talked about N one, so yeah, that guy. Yeah, <laughs> if we should do another N one just just for get all of our input on it, just so yeah, maybe we could. And that wasn't much of a review, as much of like a, it was an overview of the whole module. Maybe we could just talk about the module sometime. Yeah, and and just kind of throw some ideas out there. Yeah, I want you to like all the other ones, so sure. Yeah, in fact, I could even we could discuss about how you could actually link that module to the Temple of Elemental Evil. Ooh. Yes, there's a way you could do it. Really? Yeah. Really? <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty weird. So, um, our next email comes from John C. He writes, I am new to the podcast and I love it. I played in the early 80s when I was 11. I'm now 42. And my only version is first edition. Yay. Yay. I am in the midst of teaching my family how to play after not playing for 20 some odd years. And the info is very helpful. I'm sorry, was very helpful. I dig the host as well, but I am a bit sad to learn I'll eventually get to the episodes with no Jason. But look forward to seeing how, look forward to how it changed. So thank you from an OG AD&D fan, original geek, <laughs> keep up the good work. Well, thank, thank you, John C. Yeah, I think Jason stepped out after 59. Yeah, 59 was his last regular show, but he made a few appearances after yeah. that. So he's, he's been busy with other projects. Yeah, yeah, apparently he did some magazine or something. Uh, yeah, what was that called? Die something magazine or Gugex? Gugex, yeah, Gugex magazine. <laughs> Um, I I think it's really cool that John talks about how he's getting his family into playing it, and yeah, you know what? It is a real joy for me as a as a father to get my kids just a few years ago into it. I really wasn't sure because I both have girls, but I got my youngest Anna, and she totally digs uh, playing D and D, and she's having a ball with 
being with the group of friends that we have here that we get together with uh, at least once a month with with her and the kids down the street and they are really amazing how they are just totally getting into it and the you know they're 11 12 year old kids and they're they're problem solving they're they're you know they're doing the combat they're they're planning things and um it just kind of reminds you when you were that age and how you were kind of all you know learning this for yourself so it, it's it's really cool it's really satisfying and, and enjoying to see all those kids i i hope john has as much success and pleasure with it as well from one dad to another awesome uh matt you want to grab the next one Sure. This next one is from Rob from Essex, England. Ooh. Yes. From England. England, yes. Hi, great, wise, and all-knowing sages of RFI. Who are they? I don't know either. <laughs> are you sure? Is there another RFI podcast? Not that I know of. Okay. Well, I don't know. I guess we're no. wise and all-knowing, huh? I have listened to every episode of your brilliant podcast, mostly on my way to work on the Tube in London. Just want to thank you for such a great show that is dedicated to AD&D, a game that I have always loved and cherished since I was young boy in the 70s. Long live RFI, long live AD&D. Now that I have calmed down, unless I have mistaken, you've never done a show about the magic users' familiars. What does the panel think? Can almost any creature be a familiar? Green slime in a jar? Think not. <laughs> Keep flying the AD&D banner Flying high as I add an extra flying to that sentence in my reading. <laughs> you just got so excited. <laughs> exactly. I'm a great and all-knowing sage, apparently. Yeah. Yeah. Wise oh. and all-knowing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that would be a good show. What? Familiars. About familiars. Oh, okay. You, do you want us to answer the question, or do you yeah. want to save it for a show on familiars? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you think we can make a whole show out of familiars? I don't know. I I, th I don't know about a whole show, but I know we can do a whole segment. But because with familiars, you, it doesn't have to be the stereotypical. Oh, it's a cat. Oh, it's a bird. Oh, it's a bat. No, it can be. You can or change a toad. Yes, a toad. But you you can change those up to fit more like the, the creatures that would be domestic. For your world, if you're playing in a more tropical setting, perhaps a monkey would be a more appropriate familiar. Oh, the little monkey, yeah. Yeah, I actually did once play a magic user that had a helper monkey as his familiar. A oh, little squeaky guy. Exactly. Go fetch this. Uh, I need some eye of newt. Go fetch. I mean, monkey. <laughs> exactly. So, but yeah, I think you can actually have various different things as familiars. It doesn't have to be just the list in the book. Just kind of tailor it to the game world you're playing in. Well, yeah, and you also have the, uh, if you roll, like, I don't remember which number on the table for the fine familiar spell, you get the special ones. You know, Quasets, Ims, Pseudo-Dragon, a brownie. <laughs> <laughs> I think if you're chaotic neutral, you could get a brownie as your familiar. Yeah. Like, a brownie to eat, or oh, sorry. no, you don't eat the brownie. Well, you could oh. eat brownie, but I wouldn't recommend. It's not that kind of brownie. It's highly discouraged. It's oh. highly discouraged. Yes, but I'm sure. I think there was actually some articles back in the day on about in Dragon Magazine about different types of familiars from Magic users. So, Something you know what? 
We'll we'll look into it. I think we could at least do a segment on it. I, I'd say, yeah, we could. Uh, it's up to the DM, though. I mean, you could sit down with the player and then just flip through the players, uh, players, yeah, monster manuals and, and the fiend folios and just kind of pick something or make something up. Why not? Yeah. I mean, if Blondes, it's, you know, not too overly powerful and yeah. and, and and it makes sense in a in a magical sort of way, yeah, go with it. Maybe if you have a whatchamacallit and make it Yoda or something. Hmm. <laughs> Cast fireball, you will. Familiar, I will be. <laughs> Listen to you, I will not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, uh, thanks, Rob, from Essex, England. I hope you enjoy the rest of our shows and catching up and in the tube, as he said. Oh, Tom. In the tube. Yeah. I yeah. actually. The underground. Yeah. The underground. I actually Monster. found an article in Dragon Magazine about having oh. dragons as familiars. Ooh. Yes. Uh, issue. 146, page 14. Dragons are a wizard's best friend. 146, isn't that after AD&D? Uh, actually, it's for, uh, it's labeled as first edition according to the Dragon Deck, so it was probably that transition period. Yeah, I thought mm. so. So it's probably like 87, 88. Nah, probably second edition more, but it still works. Right. 87, 88, that was on the Twilight years of first edition. Right. Twilight. Yes. Yes. Not so, be, Rob, be movie. thanks, and mind the gap. And then, actually, I found another one. Cast of Strange Familiars, Dragon 84, page 10. There we go. That's perfect. Yep. Familiars with a special use, uh, Dragon 86, page 12. I'll throw a whole, in the show notes, I found like four or five different articles. So I'll awesome. put those all in the show notes. Because yeah. Or you can head right over and download those magazines freely. Yes. So... When we give you page numbers and uh, issue numbers, download them. There will be a test. Yes, three tests, in fact. <laughs> Nick, you have all three of them standing on his head. And yes. the number shall be three. Yes. Actually, it's going to be 42. Anyway. Mm-hmm. All right, let's go to our next email from DM Scott. Uh, he uh, is talking about converting some 1E modules uh, from or to Pathfinder. I'm finding a very interesting idea and wondering how I can get a hold of some of these finished products, if there are any out there. Uh, I ran a game of Pathfinder, even though it was not my preferred edition, 1E all the way. However, in my community, Pathfinder is is rampant and evil. Oh, it doesn't say that. And, (laughs) well, that's the group I found my way into. I'm trying to import as much old school influence into the game as possible, and I think running some 1E modules would be the perfect way. It's not that hard. We actually did an actual show on converting D20 to first and back and forth. I'm... Issue one oh two, I wanna say. Yeah, and it, it wasn't yeah, it wasn't anything as far as the monsters. That's just using different stats. I think where it came into was like when uh you had the be like ability checks and things of that nature might get a little Well, he has an advantage though. As a one E player and a Pathfinder player, he can easily just swap things in and out as he looks at the module, so good. Point. Yeah. Point. Yeah. I'm not familiar with Pathfinder, so yeah. If you go back, Volume Two, Issue Eighty is when we talked about converting Third Edition to First. Okay. So since Pathfinder has that Third Edition base, it's really not that hard. Yeah. It's just... I, I've done it plenty of times, just taking stuff from First Edition and run with Pathfinder. It's not that hard. I I, I enjoy Pathfinder for a point of view. It's something a little bit different once in a while, and it's not D and D. So therefore, it's legal. <laughs> right. <laughs> 
like many people have said, if fourth edition was not D and D, it'd be a really good game. <laughs> like Matt said, it's a perfectly good minis game. Yeah, it's a miniature board game, exactly. Uh, yeah, so I hope that helps. I mean, I've been doing that. I've converted some one E stuff, and back and forth, I was actually converting the Pathfinder Second City, I think it was called, uh, over first edition. The uh, no, Second Darkness, it was called. Sorry about okay. that. Second Darkness Pathfinder uh, Path Adventures over to first edition because it's really good. Mm. Uh, if I ever get that done, I'll, I'll put it up as a free. I don't know if can I do that, Matt? Can I put up conversions legally? Um, you can put up stat blocks. Um, no, I, I can't put the story up though, right? No, it it falls under that derivative work. Depends on how much you change, and uh, so it, I could put up just like here's the changes if you have this module here are the changes to make it first edition like and put up stat blocks right yeah, because the mechanics you box, you yeah. you can talk mechanics you can't talk story right all right so I, I would say here's second darkness module one for example and here are all the, the ways to make it first edition stat one stat two blah, blah, and they can just right buy it and do it themselves right mm-hmm. yeah just oh, don't yeah. do anything like that for anything palladium because they get weird about stuff like that or Games Workshops, apparently. Yeah. Oh, game. Yeah, because apparently Games Workshop has a time machine and actually owns all prior art to the term Space Marine. Well, they better get on the uh, Robert Heinlein uh, uh, time machine oh. then, because yeah, <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, the way Games Workshop works, they only pick on people smaller than them. Mm. Uh, the, the, this was the company that would see what game stores would advertise in White Dwarf for like over a year. And then proceed to open up Games Workshop stores, like, down the block from them. And then run them out of business. That's nice. Yeah, they're a very aggressive company, to say the least. Uh, You think? Yeah, they throw fits if you sell their product online because you're not allowed to in their mind. You're not allowed to... There's some places that do sell Games Workshop via online, but you have to actually email them in the list of stuff you want to buy. They can't list the prices or show pictures of the stuff. You just kind of have to ask, hey, do you have this? It's very weird. They want to control their stuff so much and get every dime. They don't want to get caught in that race to the bottom that competition causes. Well, remember that whole 3D printer controversy that happened in the past year or so. Yeah. Yeah. With that guy, he was printing out his own space marines and such. Right. Which is on a 3D printer. Yeah, as long as you don't tell anyone else you're doing it, they won't know. But as soon as they tell, yeah, they will. Act. However, if it was a large company doing something similar to that, they probably wouldn't touch them because they only go for battles they'll win because they want to. They basically want to scare people into uh, compliance. Comply, comply. Yes, you will obey. <laughs> okay, I think we beat that horse pretty dead. Yep. Yeah. All right. Thank you, DM Scott. Scott. Ne- <laughs> We need to get that sound effect of first thing screaming, Scott! <laughs> Ken writes this next email. Hey, guys, I love your show. I'm new to D&D, and I grew up in central Mississippi. Where was that, Missouri? No, Mississippi, yeah. Mississippi. Where, yeah. M-I-S, oh, sorry. Where it was the devil's, and it, where, 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 blah, blah, blah. where it was the devil and the forbidden, and forbidden, and I love, I can't read today. <laughs> I leave and work in, you want me to take this one? Yeah, I just my tongue is twisted. Right Words now. are hard. Okay. <laughs> count it well, over. Count okay. it down. Okay. All right, I'll count it down. 
Okay, uh, and four, three, two. Our next one is from Ken, and Ken writes, Hey guys, I love your show. I'm new to D&D. I grew up in central Mississippi where it was the devil and forbidden, because that's the devil, Bobby Boucher. <laughs> I live and work in New Orleans now. You own right. Or Nolens. Until recently, I'd only ever read tabletop RPGs like TSR's Marvel Superheroes, Top Seeker, SI, etc., but never had a chance to play them. I'm older now, and the search of a hobby brought me back to RPGs, and from there, D&D. I started with the Retro Clones, forums, blogs, Appendix N material, and Clark Ashton Smith, who wasn't on Appendix N, but is better than anyone who is. I recently picked up the Dungeon Master's Guide reprint. The level of detail intimidated me as much as did not knowing where to where to begin. Enter the Roll for Initiative podcast. Listening to the insight and friendly banter on your show has been awesome. The episodes of science fiction, multi-classing, and Hyborian campaigns are must-listen material. You made the game accessible to me, and I appreciate that. Keep up the great work and take it light. Well, Thank you, Ken. I mean, <laughs> I must, you know, I know probably Vince and I recall back in the day when that whole, the whole D&D controversy kind of blew up, huh? Yeah, geez. Oh, my gosh. And funny because, you know, I grew up Roman Catholic and my my family, no problems with it at all, you know? <laughs> None whatsoever. They were just more concerned about some of the people I hung out with, yeah. but, <laughs> like every parent is. But you know what? They saw it was a, it was a cool pastime for me. I was getting to be around a bunch of people who liked the same thing. I was enjoying myself, and they were cool with it. So, I yeah, don't know. That whole, uh, you know, uh, your uncle. I, no, no, it was not my uncle. My your cousin was my mom's cousin, actually. Uh, is a priest, and he's very concerned. He's saying anybody after who is a character for D and D after fifth level gets very attached to their character, and when the character dies, it's like a piece of them dying, and sometimes they go crazy. So he did all of his research via chick tracks. Yeah, pretty much pretty, sounds like. Yeah, and I, I was just like, uh, no, I don't really have a problem with that because we play so many games and characters die, we just toss the sheet in the garbage and make up a new one. I don't. Yeah, is what I said. She just goes, oh. Okay, good. Oh, okay. <laughs> really, I heard a little bit more about it later on, like when I got in trouble. Like, oh, well, you're always reading those GD, D&D devil books. You need to do this. But it was mostly just that crap or something. Yeah. yeah. It, 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 everybody knew what, if, if anything, controversy breeds profits with that. So right. people bought, bought more. But I thought it was interesting. He brought up like TSR's Marvel superheroes. You know, mm -hmm. all that's still free online. Yep. Yeah, classic Marvel forever, forever. Yeah, dot com. Yeah. yeah. So I remember I went, all that. I went on a camping trip, and we broke out uh, the original, the basic set for Marvel's mm -hmm. superhero. And uh, the leader of the group that we had at the time was very religious. He's like, "Oh no, you're not playing any devil games in my campground." And he took the thing and put it in the car, <sighs> and he locked the door and let us get in. Oh my goodness! Wow. Yeah, he was like, none of that devil stuff here. It's yeah. for the devil, Bobby Boucher. That's when you just run off into the forest, create a fire, and just start mumbling things. Yeah, he's like, I'm telling all your mothers when we get home the, the, the evilness that you were doing. I was like, give me a break. Right. Yes, that'd be like, please tell my parents so they can tell you how silly you are. 
Yes. It's like we were playing a superhero game. We were, it was it was the basic one. It was just like moving around on the map. It wasn't right. even much of an RPG. Oh right. Gosh. But no, make believe and pretend is evil. No matter what Mister Rogers says. Like that foosball, Bobby Boucher. That for the devil. Yeah. Okay. My mom would say, "Hey, Omre." <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> Next email comes from John H. Hi guys, I only recently returned to first edition AD and D, and I've been pouring through all the of the RFI's back issues. I have played D and D back when AD and books were new. I was an avid TSR fan and collected and played most of the games that were being published. And I have a subscription for years to Dragon. Then I discovered Call of Cthulhu. Yay. And that has occupied most of my adult role-playing time. Cool. But now I'm going to try to get back into AD&D. I'm only sorry that I missed the contest for the trio of the reprint books. I have an idea for a mausoleum that would be I would need to write up. Yeah, definitely write it up and send it in. We can uh, take a look at it. We'll even review it probably if we have the time to review it. And we'll put it up on the website for everybody to look at if you'd like. Sure. I love DM Nick's enthusiasm for the game and the true and the true-from-the-heart opinions about the game that, th- that he brings to the podcast. Aw, Nick. Thanks. I also love producer Matt's input. <laughs> two. Sorry, input two. I would love to hear more of producer Matt. Matt, start speaking up a little bit more, buddy. Okay. I shall yeah. speak more. <laughs> All right, that's enough. Yeah, that's enough. Yeah. Go back into the producer. <laughs> yeah. Well, Matt was being producer for so long. So I think sometimes he forgets that he is uh, a host on the show. So. Yeah, it's like because I'm sitting here. I, I typically will prepare the show notes as we're recording the show. So as we talk about links or things, I'm putting those into my little one note uh, sheet for the show. So I'm like doing producer work simultaneously while talking at times. <laughs> well, us, well, Nick and myself are just lounging back in the chair and doing nothing. Right, Nick? What's that? I was lounging. What? Yeah, I thought so. Um, <laughs> he continues. DM Vince is cool, and I get the feeling he is very happy, open, a very, very happy, open person, and I want to hear more of that side on the podcast. No. We will be grumpy grognar curmudgeon, sir. Yes. Get your dang knolls and bugbears off my lawn. <laughs> I will be as evil and dark as the Emperor himself. <laughs> okay, yes. Blackleaf. Something, something, something dark side. Something, something dark side. Yes. Only the dark. Anyway, another podcast for that. Anyway. 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 Anyhow. Works have pig faces, and I think priests may be allowed. Priests? Hmm? May be allowed to use edge weapons. But, ah. but only a single specific type of weapon. Let's say a short sword. And then specifically a specific short sword only that has been blessed by the clergy. What do you think about that, Nick? I'm okay with that. Oh, okay. And by blessed, I mean some kind of prayer service, not the enchant weapon thing. Yeah, I'd like to purify the weapon or something right. like that. You baptize your sword. There you go. In the enemy's blood. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> so a cleric of war might see a short sword on the battlefield, but he would only pick it up to take it back for cleansing or blessing. He wouldn't pick it up and start wielding it on the spur of the moment. I like this kind of approach because it pigeonholes the cleric to a very, very specific weapons when it comes to edge weapons. While blunt weapons inherently meet criteria for their gods. 
Love the podcast. Listening to, this, listening to this podcast has inspired me to get deeper into AD&D and to purchase the new Gygax magazine. I cannot wait for my issue to arrive as Matt squeaks again. Yes, my chair's making a cameo appearance in this show. Yeah. You need to get some oil for that, boy. Yeah. Well, thank you, John H. We appreciate the comments yeah. and uh, your your house rules, of course, on the uh, edge weapons because we all know it's a house rule, not yeah. permanent rule. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> and now I'm thinking, what if you worship the god of war who forbidden blunt weapons? That would be awesome. Yes, you get your sharp pointies, but if you're fighting skeletons, you have to fight them with your sword. You cannot right. pick up a club. Use the flat of the blade. Nope, that's nope. a blunt weapon. You must Damn. you must hack through them at half damage. Okay, uh, I turn them instead. Ha ha! Yes, good boy. Well, he cuts off your powers. You can't turn them there. You right. Know. Oh, you're just being a jerk DM now. I'm going to walk away from the table. Dup, 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 dup. <laughs> oh, jeez. Well, now that we're Nicholas, uh... <laughs> <laughs> he has the evil DM handle on Twitter for a reason. Yeah, that is correct, sir. That's true. Uh, Nick, you want to grab the last letter since I can't read anymore? Sure. <laughs> okay. Um, our last is this our yeah our last letter from Montana S. And Montana S. writes, "Hey RFI gang, congratulations on breaking 100 episodes. I have two quick questions for you guys. One, how do you handle a large group of players uh, with kill them with whip and chair? Thanks. I keep an open door." to players of all levels of experience in gaming backgrounds, even if they can only attend one session or only attend once a month play in my weekly group. So lucky you have a weekly group. This has <laughs> given me an average of about six to nine regular players. And for a holiday weekend where some high school buddies are home, the attendance can rise high as 14-plus players. Any tips for helping run a great game where everyone can participate? Oh, Wow. Um, let's get back to that. <laughs> Go ahead. Oh, uh, number two, weapon damage versus large. I think it's a cool rule, but I can't quite wrap my head around it. I cannot justify using a rule I cannot understand. So do you guys use it? And what's the logic behind it when you, when you use, when you do it? If a longsword leaves a detoe size hole in an org ogre, shouldn't it leave a larger hole in a pig faced orc by comparison? Also, how do other weapons like battle axes ever get picked up by the fighter if a longsword would end up being more versatile? Also, you should cover ogres sometime soon. They're great monsters. I'd love to hear you talk about them. Thanks for your input. <laughs> okay. So the first question, uh, that's kind of a hard one. It only depends on the level of experience of the dungeon master, of course. But what I've seen is, uh, and I've done this before to myself, is have more than one DM. Yeah. Uh, it can be kind of boring for the second DM, but if you have that large of a group and you really want to play, this might be your only answer. Mm -hmm. You can have uh, the main DM running the story, and you can have him know the story, what's going on, and have the secondary DM run NPCs as well as keep things organized by going around the table to find out what people are doing. Maybe if they want to, if the group splits up, he can take the separate group in a different direction. Mm -hmm. Things like that. Or I've seen that done at conventions a yeah. lot of times. Right. Yeah. I, I just recall when I was first playing back in the early mid eighties, there was one DM. I wish I remember his name, but 
everybody, and I mean everybody, wanted yeah. to get in on his game. Sounds like Joe. You know, I, and you know what it was? He yeah. was so, and he would he would cut it off like at maybe twelve, thirteen people. You know, that's but it. Everybody wanted to get in, but the thing was, it his style was he was one very energetic. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Two, he vocalized a lot. He projected his his voice mm-hmm. quite a bit. So he sang. Uh, well, he he was able to get grab everybody's attention right. around that table. It was uh, a much I mean, as a lot a... of times it was you know it was um, at a game store for there was like a gaming club of all different types and he had to be a little bit loud so everybody could hear. Right, as much and as our public performance yeah. is anything at that point, you have to be more dynamic. You just can't be monotone when trying to engage that many people. Yeah, and the third thing, he stood up. Mm-hmm. At he was not behind the screen. So those were, I, I think, the three big things for him. And you know what? With a large group, even at, at home, even with my regular group, I do all three of those things. I try to be as energetic as possible. I try to project my voice, try to orate as best as I can. And I stand. I'm standing up. Mm-hmm. I I. I want to have everybody who could see me, hear what's going on. I could grab everybody's attention. And, and that way, everybody's pulled into it. Everybody right. is participating, uh, not only with me, but with each other then. Right. So I think those are three good tips that you can try to get everybody to participate. Yeah. So, again, oration, be energetic, and, and seriously, stand up. Right. Stand up. And don't be behind that screen. Right. Yes. Yeah, standing actually will give you more energy. That it actually yep. makes you more lively. You're more likely to express what you're getting across with more emotion when you are standing as opposed to sitting. Mm-hmm. Also, something I think to consider is don't get hung up on minute details of the rules because that will bring your game to a screeching halt for a lot more people. When they have to wait while you're trying to adjudicate one rule for one person, yep. you'll want to play a little looser with the rules just to keep the ge- just to keep the game flowing because you're not just trying to intergroup entertain two or three people. You have ten to fourteen in some, some cases. So at that point, it becomes more about the role playing and the storytelling than the hard mechanics just to keep the game moving because not everyone's going to be interested in the exact wording of paragraph two on page 34 of the DMG. Right. Cause I've seen it go the other way where like I was at a year, a few years ago at origin, someone was running a tournament. He had, and this was just a group of six people, but he got caught up in the minutia of the rules. He was behind the screen and you could barely hear the man. Well, that's the DM's fault. I mean, I've sat down and not gotten up and still engaged players and still. Yeah, but you, you were, you were, you could be easily heard and you were energetic, I'm sure. Yeah, and people don't have a problem with it. I guess it all depends on the style of the person, so. Right. Right. How natural with those, is. But with a large group, that will help. Right. It, it, it comes down to how natural is public speaking because at that point, it's. Yes. 
evolved past a just talking with a group of people to more of a public speaking. All right, well, uh, let's go on to the second question here before we ramble on about this, because we can go on it for days upon days upon hours and weeks. I know Weapon I damage that. versus large, I've never had a problem with it. Okay, you guys fill in on that one, because I got, I got nothing on that. I mean... Yeah? I don't know what... Mm, I understand his thinking behind it, like, why does it do more damage to a larger creature? And if it's going to cause the same size hole in the larger creature, why wouldn't it do the same amount of damage? Well, it wouldn't necessarily cause the same size hole. It would cause a larger hole because you're hitting them with... They're larger, therefore you can hit with more of the blade. It's the difference between if you swing a sword at me or swing a sword at a tree trunk, what's going to make more contact, have more contact with the blade? The tree trunk. Hopefully you. No, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, it would just... Yeah. Well, that that glass that you broke your, your, into your arm that has to beg to differ, Matt. No, yeah. Oh, I'm. Yeah. yeah. I actually. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah, but uh, you're right, Matt. The larger the target, the more easier it is to hit with with all of the sword as compared to some of the sword. So right. that's that's why you're doing more damage. Uh, that's at least how we think about that. I just never thought about it. I thought, okay, there must be a reason behind it, and, and I just kind of went with it. And then, I guess I just don't try to over overcomplicate right. it. And then myself. some weapons they go down in effectiveness against large. Yeah, uh, pole arms are notorious for that. Right, I, I believe they go yeah. down in damage for the larger creatures. Right. So I'm sure there's actually, if we really sat down and examined all the weapons, there's probably a good logical explanation as to why some are more effective against others. Because at that point, a uh, polearm is nothing more than a toothpick against a giant. So, right. I mean, like, uh, like I'm looking at in the player's handbook here. The uh, like they was talking about what? Um, where is it? Like uh, the Beck de Corbin. That's that's a polearm. Mm-hmm. Small to medium, it does one to eight. Large does a d six. While Aranzur uh, does a two to eight, small to medium, two to eight to large, does the same damage. Mm-hmm. So, why? It's just the design of the weapon, and they probably thought, okay, this weapon probably does more damage than the other, or the same. A glaive, on the other hand, does one to six to small to medium, d10 to a large. So, it does more to a large. So, I don't mm-hmm. know. All right, well, cool. I hope that answers the question. I mean, I don't know what else to say about that. And but, does uh, have anybody actually used the Bohemian Ear Spoon? No. Okay. <laughs> Just uh, curious. So as far as the last part of his email, uh, we should cover ogres sometime. That'd be kind of a cool episode to do ogres on. Yeah. Uh, and all the different variants. I wonder if there, I think there was a Rollades done on that, wasn't there? Rollades. I think I saw rollways on maybe giants or larger creatures. I can't remember. I'll have to look through my collection of rollades. I mean, I'm not a a rollade expert, but I could have sworn there was one. Uh, let's see here. And they are great monsters, and they're really interesting to use. Uh, a lot of people forget about them. And to wrap up the show this week, if you'd like to give us a call, staff at gmail.com. Well, it's not going to call us at staff, but you can call us. You can call five, us on the hotline, though. 570-865-4210, the hotline. Or you can go to uh, facebook.com slash podcast and uh, 
leave us some feedback. Don't forget to go to rfipodcast.com and vote on our poll who you'd like to request an interview from. And uh, always comment on there. Tell your friends. You can follow us on Twitter at RFI Podcast. At, uh, has, what's it called? At, at, at RFI Podcast. Yeah, I couldn't figure out if it was at Twitter. Yeah, we have Twitter. We're all over the place. Yeah. That's right. We're not on Google Plus, though, because I don't really spend much time on there. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so that too. And if you're interested in being a guest host on the podcast, we are, we would love to have some guest hosts here. And cause I know a lot of people were always like, Oh, I'd like to come on the show is, you know, is it possible? Yeah, it's possible. If you have a good connection, a headset on Skype, we can uh, talk about it. Just give us a uh, shout out to RFI staff at gmail.com and let us know your interest and uh, we'll talk to you about it. So uh, mm-hmm. give us a shout. If you're if you're a by the book person, uh, then you can come on the podcast and tell us how we're doing everything wrong, and have your revenge. <laughs> no, <I'm kidding. laughs> evilly like that. So yeah, uh, that's been uh, I guess volume three, issue number one hundred eight, and we'll be back next week with uh, some really cool stuff. Yeah. So. Yeah. 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 Keep oh, that a- was really anticlimactic. Yeah. <laughs> keep it original. Keep it old school. Good night, everybody. Good night. Hey, everyone. Go for initiative.